Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by BetDSI. Hey, you're looking for a place to bet on NFL and NCAA football? BetDSI is the industry leader in football betting and the perfect sports book for both novice and professional bettors alike. New members get a 100% bonus match when you use the promo code SEATS100. Yeah, that's SEATS100 at BetDSI.com. That's more than double your money to help start winning today. Once again, BetDSI.com, promo code SEATS100, and get your limited time 100% bonus offer when you deposit today. Now, here's our show. So, Wes Unseld, who in 1971 failed as the center of the Baltimore Bullets when they were blown out by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Milwaukee Bucks in four straight games, and who failed again in 1975 when the Golden State Warriors beat the Washington Bullets by four straight, is just 12 ticks of the clock away from his first NBA championship. Paul Silas will take the ball out of bounds. It's been a whale of a campaign. And the tide looks now starting to show on even the fans' faces. It began eight months ago. Dennis Johnson begins the countdown. They must shoot quickly. It is in and out. Unsell with control. It is about to end. Bobby Dandridge, he will be our most valuable player. Bobby Dandridge voted to CBS most valuable player here in the NBA Championship Series. And the celebration can begin in Washington. Dick Mata and Bernie Bickerstaff are embracing over there as the Washington Bullets jubilantly file off the floor and the crowd here in Seattle rather than booing comes to its feet and gives both these teams a tremendous ovation. Freddie Brown and Wes Unseld shaking hands at midcourt and it was the Washington Bullets prevailing 105 to 99 the final score as they file into their locker room. The commissioner of the NBA Lawrence O'Brien is here with some special guests and Commissioner why don't you present this trophy. This is one of the great series of all time in the NBA. And it was played right down to the wire, and we could all be proud of the Supersonics, uh, of course, tonight. And I'm very happy to be here with Jerry Sachs, Bob Ferry, our coach uh, Dick Mata, and Wes Unsell, who has been waiting a while for all of this. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this show on the road, shall we? How you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hamlin, and you have found, stumbled across, perhaps mistakenly so, well, hopefully not, the little podcast we like to call Good Seats Still Available. It's our little curious journey we like to do for you each and every week, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. Uh, and boy, oh boy, we have a ton of forgotten sports memories to cram into this one little episode. As we delve into the very surprising and very deeply rich, uh, and frankly, a lot of it unbeknownst to yours truly, basketball, pro basketball history of the city of Washington, D.C. Our guest this week is Brett Abrams. He's the co-author, along with Rafael Mazzone, of a book called The Bullets, the Wizards, and Washington, D.C. Basketball. And it is a tour de force. It's a history, a little walk through the history of the professional game in Washington, D.C., a whole bunch of which I didn't even know about. Now, most people certainly know the Washington Wizards of today, of course, and maybe a, a, a good chunk of folks out there listening to this show know that they were known as the Washington Bullets prior to their name change in the uh, mid-1990s. We get into the reasons why in our conversation with Brett in a little while. Uh, but uh, the Bullets 
really kind of synonymized themselves with Washington in the 1970s for sure when they won their uh, big 1978, excuse me, 1978 NBA championship, uh, Washington D.C.'s first real substantial professional uh, sports franchise uh, uh, victory championship uh, there um, uh, in many many years. Um, but the Bullets uh, were obviously, or maybe not known to a lot of people, actually domiciled in Baltimore for many years prior to them moving to D.C. We get into the story of why that occurred and how and when that that occurred. But I would, I'm willing to bet that most people listening to this show don't even know this little factoid, uh, as I kind of just discovered. Uh, before they were in the Baltimore Bullets in 1963, they began their life in the NBA as the Chicago Packers in 1961, renamed the Chicago Zephyrs in 1962, moving to Baltimore in 63. I didn't know that. Fascinating stuff. But yes, the Washington Wizards can dial their history all the way back to the 1961 Chicago Packers team. Uh, and we get into all that sort of uh, uh, discussion and that sort of history uh, in our conversation. But that's not all, folks. No, no, no. We're just kind of getting warmed up because we can go way back. The, the history of pro basketball dates all the way back to the uh, the owner, well, more well-known uh, as the uh, owner of the Washington Now football team. We're not going to sort of uh, reference its name. Um, but the Palace Five, what the original, probably one of the original pro basketball teams, uh, George Preston Marshall was the founder of that, and they played in a little place called the Uline Arena in uh, the center of the city there. Um, and uh, it that begot uh, about a dozen or two years later, Red Auerbach, you know that name for the Boston Celtics. Well, he kind of got his start with a little team in the American Basketball League called the Washington Capitals, with an O, Capitals. Um and the Uline Arena, for you uh, folks in the D.C. area, may know that better now as uh, the um, uh, the flagship store of REI uh, in downtown Washington, D.C. Yeah, that used to be the Uline Arena where the Palace Five and the Washington Capitals and even the Washington Tapers of the ill-fated and very short-lived American Basketball League of Abe Saperstein uh, we've talked about that uh, a little bit with uh, some previous teams like the um, uh, the, the George Steinbrenner uh, Cleveland Pipers were part of that league. Um, and as uh, a fascinating little tale there. And yeah, that was uh, Abe Saperstein's little promotional uh, effort to kind of move on from uh, the Harlem Globetrotters and the barnstorming model into an actual challenger professional league. Uh, of the NBA, the fledgling NBA at that point, 1961, 62. Uh, and, uh, and a guy named Earl Foreman uh, comes into the scene. He's the guy who was uh, sort of instrumental, along with Abe Poland, buying that, uh, that franchise from Chicago and bringing them the, the bullets to Baltimore. But once that went sour for Earl Foreman, uh, by the way, reminder, the co-founder of the Major Indoor Soccer League, hint, hint, see our, or listen to our conversation with the great Ed Tepper uh, about that. Um, Earl Foreman got bought out by Abe Poland and the Baltimore Bullets um, and decided he was going to create a team in Washington, D.C. proper, uh, a renamed, a rebooted Washington Capitals, known as the Caps, actually, in the ABA, the American Basketball Association. They only lasted a year or a season. 
Uh, but uh, Earl Foreman was thinking, hey, maybe I could get my uh, hands on the Washington, D.C. market uh, if and when the ABA and the NBA merge. Uh, it ultimately happened years later. He had to move to Virginia to become the Squires uh, with the ABA. And it it didn't sort of wor- work out that well for Earl Foreman in that regard. Uh, the Squires did not uh, get absorbed into the NBA. But A. Pollen uh, did indeed, uh, and, and some would say was part of uh, uh, forcing Earl Foreman out of D.C. Uh, he uh, essentially uh, extended his uh, regional rights, if you will, in moving Baltimore to Washington, D.C. They became the capital bullets for a season, if you can believe that. And then they ultimately became the Washington bullets in, uh, I think it was 74. Uh, and that's uh, where they lasted until becoming the Wizards in the mid-90s. But all of that stuff is just, it's all its all kinds of twists and turns. Washington, D.C., professional basketball, who knew? Not only all these names and uh, twists and turns, but um, we get into all of that uh, and more uh, with our guest again this week, Brett Abrams, as we talk Washington, D.C. pro hoops. Fascinating stuff. Great book. And intrigue all around uh, in just a few moments' time. A couple of promotional notes, he says. Let's get into uh, uh, a few places where you can uh, perhaps uh, scratch that Washington professional basketball itch. Uh, Let's see. In no particular order, how about our pals at reboundvintagehoops.com? Reboundvintagehoops.com for all kinds of great promotional uh, T-shirt items in the realm of basketball. And if uh, you want to remember the Washington tapers of the old American Basketball League, uh, they began, by the way, we'll talk about it. They played in the Washington Coliseum. Uh, they uh, relocated in the middle of the season to Long Island to become the New York tapers. Uh, and then next the season after that, for the half season that was left of the ABL, they moved to Philadelphia. So only a brief amount of time that they were in Washington. But that when they were known as the Washington tapers, uh, you can find that logo on a mug, a T-shirt, a sweatshirt, whatever, at extra. T- uh, excuse me, reboundvintagehoops.com. Use the promo code GOODSEATS, and you'll get 10% off all of your purchases, including any of that Washington Tapers stuff that you might like. And there's lots of t- great uh, uh, teams uh, from various professional basketball leagues uh, for you there. Again, at reboundvintagehoops.com, promo code GOODSEATS. 10% off off your Washington Tapers gear and uh, and other stuff too. Um, but let's say you want to remember the Washington Caps, the ABA team that was there for a season. Uh, there are two great shirts for you at our pals at streakersports.com. Streakersports.com, the purveyors of uh, sports culture, and the promo code for you there is good seats. And we've got a 10%, no, no, not 10%, 15% discount for you there. Again, promo code GOODSEATS at streakersports.com. And they've got two great shirts, two great logo treatments for the uh, 1969-70 year season of the Washington Caps. Um, uh, for you to uh, obsess about, uh, choose, and enjoy. So check them out, streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS. And last but not least, let's say not only were you a Caps fan, but you want to go, you want to go deeper. And you want to truly commemorate and show your friends that you not only remembered the Washington Caps ABA franchise, but you still, you can't let go. And you want to go that that, that level beyond. Well, how about a custom made uh, with your name on the back of it, if you'd like, 
Washington Caps retro jersey. Oh, yeah. Either in yellow with green trim and uh, green lettering and numbering numerals, or perhaps maybe you like to have that green, that uh, forest green color with the yellow trim and yellow numbers and uh, and letters that says caps on it in both both cases. Well, that's our friends at Royal Retros that can uh, help you out there. RoyalRetros.com. And uh, not only uh, uh, will you find jerseys from uh, the Washington Caps, but all kinds of ABA teams. How about the Houston Mavericks or the Anaheim Amigos or maybe the San Diego Sales? Or how about even the Virginia Squires where the Washington Caps moved to? Maybe even the Oakland Oaks, the team that actually preceded the Washington Caps. Yeah, that was the franchise. And we talked about it with our pal Pat Boone, the owner of that franchise. That was the franchise after two seasons in Oakland that moved to Washington as Earl Foreman bought that franchise and moved it to D.C. Well, you can you can relive all of that stuff on a daily basis if you want. Just make sure you wash the item. You don't want to stink up the joint, right? You want to keep it nice and clean. And again, that's a, that's a retro, excuse me, royalretros.com, the king of throwbacks. The promo code for you there is SEATS for 10% off that jersey or any other item that you might like and find at royalretros.com. Again, 10% off for the promo code SEATS at royalretros.com. All right. I think I've exhausted all of those opportunities, but if you're a Washington, D.C. professional hoops fan and you want to go deep and show your understanding and your knowledge and you want to school your friends, check out those sites and use those promo codes. And uh, please enjoy, courtesy of us and our friends at those various places. Um, lots of great stuff for you at all of those places and more. Uh, and thanks for checking them out. We appreciate it. All right, let's get into our conversation. We're going to get into it now deeply with uh, Brett Abrams. We're going to talk about Washington Hoops, all kinds of professional versions and twists and turns. Here's our conversation we had just last week. Please sit back and Enjoy. I take it this isn't necessarily your day job writing books about pro basketball history. Correct. One's sales would be very disappointing if, if one was relying on putting food on the table for that. Uh, the What happened is I moved here to Washington and went to school as a, uh, in history, got a Ph.D. in uh, in history and loved being here and the city has grown and diversified and become infinitely more exciting and during that time it just swept me up and so my second book is called capital sporting grounds and what that was about was the team the the fields that existed don't exist anymore continue to exist uh, for baseball and football throughout the throughout the city, and I talk about the politics of getting them built, and specifically I talk about the reasons behind them. Like for example, because Washington is the capital, a lot of reasons were for monumental purposes. We were going to have a stadium for Lincoln. We were going to have a stadium for Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, these, this is just to be expected for Washington. I think the most interesting chapter was the one that was devoted to the reasoning for building stadiums because we were going to host the, uh, what was it, the 2002 Olympics with Baltimore and um, Alexandria, Virginia. So 
that got me looking around. And one day I rode what's the Metro, which is the subway system, and looked outside and saw a very strange building. And it's a very cool building. It's called the Uline Arena. And it was named after the guy who built it. It's on, it's in the near northeast corridor of Washington. It's where the trains run from when you come into Union Station in Washington, D.C. You pass it. Inevitably, you pass it. And it actually, from that place, you can actually look out and see the nation's capital building itself. This fellow who was writing about sports for the local version of, you know, Village Voice told me that it was an old arena and it was a coliseum and it was a place where the Beatles came in 1964, the first place where they played. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So then I looked at the sports aspect of it and found out that an ice maker in the days of the 1930s, a guy who made ice and then provided it to the different businesses and residences around the city, decided that it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a hockey team. So he built one. He built an arena for a hockey team. And that U-Line arena then became the setup for the first, well, the second Washington basketball team, which was coached by Red Auerbach and took and occurred in the 19th, late 1940s and early 1950s. So that's long-winded enough, I figure. <laughs> no, that's interesting. So it was the building, and, and for, for uh, uh, people who sort of walk by today, I believe it's the flagship store of uh, REI in Washington, D.C., yeah? Correct. Correct, it is. And they did a good job on the historic preservation aspect of it. Uh, both Raphael and I are in the video where they talk about what the building was like before. They use pictures, of course, from the ball games. I mean, it's notable for a variety of different reasons. Most people are most attracted to the idea that the Beatles landed there, and after Ed Sullivan, they went down by train and played at the what was called the Washington Coliseum at that point in 1964. So that was their opening performance for the first Beatles tour in that era. So that was pretty interesting. But, but how did basketball... Yeah, how did basketball ensnare you then? Because given the, the roots of it being a hockey arena. So there's the, the, the hockey arena lasts from 1941 on. It was called the Washington Lions was the name of the team. And if Mike Uline became connected to the group of people that were interested in starting the 1940s Basketball League, which was called the Basketball Association of America. And it was going to compete against what was called the National Basketball League, which had one of the most notable players of that era, Mikan, George Mikan. He was playing, and the National Basketball League was a league that focused mostly on the Rust Belt areas of Indianapolis and Akron and those smaller cities. And so what the folks at, what the basketball group did in the East was form a group of people that would play under the BAA, and that included New York, Chicago, St. Louis, basically the route that was the same structure that was used for the Major League Baseball in that era. So New York, Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, and that was really about as, as far as it went. So Uline got involved with that group of people. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, uh, so in essence minor league hockey 
was the primary reason, but basketball was becoming, and we've talked about that in various episodes, right? This was becoming more of a professional thing that you're talking about the two direct feeder leagues that ultimately became the NBA. Exactly. The two feeder leagues. And so what was interesting was our back was serving in the Navy in 1942-43 and of course was playing basketball and got to know people like Bones McKinney who is from North Carolina and some of these other people that had played college basketball and were now playing semi-pro or were in the Navy themselves. And so he actually got in touch with mine and Uline and he formed a team together and Auerbach brought most of his friends to the team along with himself. And so they were actually pretty strong. They were mostly, I could talk, I think Red Auerbach is the most interesting character of all the people that were involved with that Capitals team. But in the third season, that Capitals team played the Minneapolis Lakers with Mikan for the championship of the league. They were that good. And the 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 uh, the rise of basketball around that time, right? I mean, D.C. obviously in the Northeast and the Midwest, right, was was pretty much the sort of uh, the origins of of the pro game, you know. And really, in many respects, D.C. was more than holding its own already. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of you know give New York and Philadelphia certainly a lot of props as sort of the early progenitors of the game and 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 uh, and, and quality, but. This Washington Capitals team, late 40s, early 1950s, right, um, seemed to be pretty scrappy, and you couldn't do worse than having a guy like Auerbach, right? No. In fact, Auerbach's the key player. And as far as the, the engine that makes the team work, the person who puts the right players out on the court, the person who makes the right trades, the person who negotiates the contracts, unfortunately, he was going on a one-year-by-one-year basis. And so Uline decided that he didn't want to give him a multiple-year contract, and Auerbach walked away. And when Auerbach walked away, a guy named Bob Ferrick became the team's coach, and even though they made the playoffs the next year, the team basically fell, fell from uh, good graces at that point. And by the fifth year, they were, ready to, they were actually going to drop out of the league, and they dropped out of the league in 1951. Yeah, so I think most people don't recognize that, that when the when the NBA was finally uh, announced, that merger, if you will, of the BAA and the right. NBL, Washington Capitals were part of the uh, first right. ever um, uh, assemblage of, quote-unquote, NBA franchises. Correct. They were, and they were also the first to ever use an African-American player, a guy by the name of Earl Lloyd. So that's kind of fun. And they actually had Bill Sharman on their team. So both Bill Sharman and Earl Lloyd were friends. They both went into military service together because the Korean War breaks out. And so they have to go and put their time into the Army, which, of course, debilitated the Washington Capitals roster, which basically made it almost impossible for the team to play well. And when the team didn't play well, nobody came to see the games. I mean, there's some fascinating stuff about uh, Washington and segregation which I would like to talk a little bit about with the, the Uline Arena. Well, sure. Go ahead. I mean, um, uh, this is a city, right? Uh, Washington's uh, a segregated. Yeah, I mean, you're going to talk about D.C., right? It's, 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 the, 
It's it's got the the best and the worst of both the northeast and the southeast, right? Correct. It does, and so it is segregated, and so black people could not go to basketball games at Uline, but could go to boxing events. I mean, very strange, very very particular and unique rules. And so during that time, there was a huge hue and cry, as you would expect, and and an effective protest that they held on a regular basis outside Uline Arena. And it worked. And so Uline caved and allowed for African-Americans to come and see the game of basketball or hockey or whatever else was going on at the arena at that time. And that's a big deal because at that point, Griffith Stadium is segregated, uh, which is the place where the Washington Senators played. So that's also where the uh, Washington Redskins uh, of that old name played. And so that was a segregated place. And the only place where African-Americans and white people could meet and mingle would be the public library, which was on... um, it was a Carnegie Library that sits in the middle of the city, basically on palatial Massachusetts Avenue. So the, the work, getting New Line to cave and for mixing of African-Americans and Caucasians in that 1948 period is, is a huge breakthrough. And then, of course, it's rather touching that we have the we in Washington have the first African American player in NBA history, whoever took the court. So I think that's kind of fun too. All right. Well, let me stop you there because now I actually want to go back a step because when you bring up racial segregation and Washington D.C. and sports, you now hit the tripwire of a guy named George Preston Marshall, right? And. <laughs> Uh, I think every, uh, most of our listeners, yeah, from our previous conversations about uh, the Washington football team, its origins, the original ownership, uh, how they came into the NFL. Um, yeah, this was a guy who was not shy about uh, his views on uh, segregation. And ironically, or maybe not so, uh, he's actually an integral part of our little conversation today because he was actually part of uh, arguably the first real professional basketball franchise years earlier in D.C. Right. Right. Exactly. The American Basketball League, which was ironically founded by people like George Hallis, who was struggling at that point to bring the National Football League into uh, into its uh, into its own. And so it turns out Harris and Marshall become friendly with each other through a guy named Joe Carr, who was also part of the National Football League. And they decide in 1925 that there could be money made out of a national basketball group, and they called it the American Basketball League. And so that starts in the mid-20s. Before that, there were barnstorming teams, especially the, the New York Celtics, which was a group of people that played basketball and went from place to place and took on the best players of that, of that city and usually beat them. They were key ball handlers. They, they were great shooters. And so usually they drew crowds of like two to 3,000 people. They'd set, up a, they'd set up an arena 
the arena would be surrounded by a cage, which I think we have to understand is where the notion of a cager comes from in basketball history. The term is, is sometimes synonymous with basketball players, and it means that they were literally playing inside of a ring, sometimes, sometimes not very bigger than a dance floor that was surrounded by a cage. And frequently that cage was used to keep people who were throwing things onto the floor from doing too much damage. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a kind of an interesting era, you know? I mean, we can't even imagine what, how anybody would, well, we do know. We've seen Russell Westbrook, we've seen Ron Artest react violently to being egged on literally and figuratively by fans. So only imagine what it would have been like had they been in this cage and been forced and subjected to people throwing tomatoes and other things at them. But the, so this league basically started with teams in all the, all the New York, all the Northeast cities, Boston, Brooklyn, Buffalo, Chicago, Cleveland, and Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Washington, D.C., and Detroit. So those are the big teams that are playing. They divide it up into two leagues. And somebody comes up with the genius idea of splitting. The, they play the first champion would be for the half of the, half of the league, and then the second champion would be the second half of the league, and then the two winners would play off in the playoffs. So that's how they divided it. Why do you think, um, as you look back, why do you think, uh, I, 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 I can probably guess probably the economic reason, but why did the Washington Palace Five, as they would know, I think they're also known as the Laundrymen, a little story behind that too, right? Why do they only last a handful of years in the 20s um, and then sort of dissipate until um, until the uh, Capitals came along what, almost 20 years later? Right. Well, Marshall's into everything to make money. He does like to have attention paid to him, and there's kind of this joke about gorgeous George. And I even referenced looking at his picture that he kind of cuts a suave look. He ran a company called the Palace Laundry Dry Cleaning Company in an era when people didn't have washers and dryers in their house, barely had space for rooms to keep their, keep their beds. So everybody had to actually use the laundry services and his was the biggest one in Washington. He took it over from his father, who ran a West Virginia company, and turned it into a mega business. And so with that in mind, he thinks, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to basically improve my stock by linking myself up with popular culture, with a sports team. And they played in a place called the Arcadia, which was on usual basis, a dance floor. And they played on Wednesdays and Sunday nights and they drew pretty good crowd. And then most of the people would stay and dance afterwards. But I think it's kind of interesting to talk about what kind of game we're talking about. You know, this is, this is a, there are some, some references to this game in some box box. Yeah. You try to look at a box score and try to understand what in the world happened and it really doesn't tell you the whole thing. It just gives you a little snippet that you can, you can possibly even misinterpret. In some of these games, they had 50 fouls. It's, it's grabbing 
It's pulling people down. It's very rough and tumble. You're only going to the foul line for a single shot. So you can only score one point if you're going to the foul line as opposed to shooting from the outside. And the ball is warped. And they haven't even developed a sense of, of a set shot yet. So you really had to get in close to score. So there was a lot of mugging. And that's pretty much what the game was like. So it's a very rough and tumble game. And it's interesting that it was a very highly immigrant game. It drew a lot of, a lot of Italian and Jewish immigrants in the Northeast who were drawn to both the opportunity to play sports, but also the opportunity to make a decent check. I mean, some of these guys are making 800 bucks for playing and the great ones are making five to $10,000 in this new league. It's also a social event though, too, right? For, for, uh, because of the dance and the sort of component afterwards, right? It was like, it's kind of like an event, a social circle, especially for those, uh, either ethnic or, or, uh, you know, social club kind of things, right? Where the bas- basketball and dancing and, and probably some food and it's a whole night, right? Full of stuff. Exactly. It's a whole night. And what's interesting about that is, and it, it kind of puts basketball into context a little bit. I think, especially nowadays, when we look at what the NBA is and the amount of coverage that it gets, I don't think we can even fathom what it was like in the 20s and the 40s and the 50s, where these guys, I mean, I talk a lot. I'm, I'm a labor historian by training, and so I'm very focused on what it was like to travel, what it was like, how much your per diem was. These guys, even through the 50s, these men who are six foot six, six foot seven, would cram three and four to a car and drive from Rochester to Fort Wayne to be able to get to a game. So that is so far afield from what we're used to thinking about. And so often the the people that went to the game, as you're saying, would use it for an opportunity to cluster around like-minded people or people from their own community. And that continued through the 1940s, where sometimes they had music, musical acts or some second half of the event so that people could get a full night out of it. As one person said, if I'm going to spend $5 on a date, I don't want it to end by nine o'clock. Wink, wink, nod, nod, but you know. (laughs) Exactly. So that is pretty much, I mean, that's what the servicemen were thinking when they were coming back and starting to date some of these women in 46 and 47 and 48. They want to have something else. They don't want to, I mean, it's expensive to go to a game. So they want to be there for three to four hours. And they want to have the opportunity to get to know the person that they're with and to show them a good time. Yeah. And I think for what you're also hinting at, too, is, is this this also um, essentially uh, uh, connects with uh, the history of the sport professionally, too, because around that, I mean, you're describing, you know, for a couple of decades, you know, it's 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 sort of this melange of, of social activity and the cager thing and the rules are still relatively it, the the uh, industrial component of it where people are you know working by day playing by night and, and and the barnstorming and the bus rides and all that kind of stuff and the abl for many many years was i want to call it ragtag but it was certainly very it was industrial both uh, pejoratively as well as uh, uh literally right and um and i think i think that's kind of probably one of the reasons that uh, a team if really didn't sort of um 
sort of come about another professional team until the late 40s when both of these uh, fledgling professional leagues were were getting going. And it only made sense, I guess, given the early history uh, of uh, for D- uh, D.C. to get uh, one of those initial pro franchises. I'm just surprised that, uh, you know, that the Capitals didn't last more than about four or five seasons. Um, I, I, I get the sense that they kind of went down a rung after they sort of left the what was now now the NBA after starting in the um, in the BAA they kind of took a step down and, and played in the they they went back down if you will to the original ABL and kind of played more of the ragtag version until they fully dissipated uh, a year later right that's exactly what happened they were in the NBA for a little while but they didn't have the once they lost our back they lost they lost the genius the basketball genius and that had to do with both play on the court, but also people that you would get, you know, I mean, you can't, he had that. And without that, there was nobody, nobody strong enough to lead it. And then Bob Ferrick eventually leaves for, a, for the safer confines of college basketball. And now, now they're basically bankrupt both as a, as a group of players, but also in their, in their, in their leadership. They had a leadership board. I mean, that's something that unfortunately seems to have crippled a lot of Washington basketball franchises is a little bit of a, a, a brain drain, so to speak, or not getting the right people in the first place. I mean, the other ABL that was, I mean, if we want to go a little further, uh, Abe Saperstein decides that he wants to get into the NBA and the owners won't, the owners won't let him the guy who owned the Harlem Globe Charters. So he starts a league, the second version of the American Basketball League in 1961. And Washington joins that as a professional, as a, one of the professional team entries. And so, I mean, that's kind of an interesting story in its own right, because this, this new league is happening at the same time that the AFL is starting in football. Yeah, and this is let's, let's put this in context, right? This is about ten years or so after the NBA had itself uh, been created from the loins out of the loins of uh, of the BAA and the NBL. And you also recognize too that somebody like Abe Saperstein, right, very involved in, uh, especially in the Philadelphia area, a lot of sort of the early stuff about basketball in its very early days, as we were just describing. So this is a guy who's been around and, and has been making money. Uh, if you will, albeit, you know, uh, in sort of a barnstorming fashion professionally. Right. So if he's not allowed somehow to come into the NBA and there's various reasons why as to why that was the case, he's like, well, maybe I can get a few of my fellow arena owners who feel similarly. Let's let's challenge the NBA. And you know, there's plenty of more cities that could benefit from professional basketball now that it's becoming a thing. But as you're going to describe in a minute, uh, not only. Uh, did that not last very long? I think it was officially a season and a half. Uh, this franchise, why don't you describe the history of this franchise? Because even though the league only lasted a year and a half, this franchise had an interesting, uh, uh, its own journey within that year and a half. Harry Lynn, this guy who owns the Washington Coliseum, he bought it off the widow of Mike Uline, decides that, hey, I need some entertainment. And he wants, he loses the job that he was doing in Washington and the family wants to stay in Washington, D.C. So he thinks, 
I can make money running this business. And so he goes and gets in contact with a man named Paul Cohen, who was running an industrial team called the Tapers. And he gives Cohen basically the reins to start the Washington, to stock and start the Washington basketball team. You can imagine just thinking about this for a minute. You're taking an industrial team as your core players. That's, that's a pretty bad start in my mind, you know, and so that's, that's where, that's what was one of the elements behind this. But I just want to talk a little bit briefly about where Saperstein's business sense is coming from. Television is now bursting out into all kinds of individual homes across the country. I mean, obviously television starts in the thirties, but really becomes a big deal in some of the major Eastern cities during the late 1940s. But by the fifties, with shows like I Love Lucy and everything else, it becomes something that everybody's watching. And so televised sports is definitely an opportunity. And the AFL saw that opportunity with football, and Saperstein thought they would have the same opportunity with basketball. What he didn't understand was basketball was nowhere near as popular as football. So he couldn't get that kind of contract, the kind of money that kept the AFL afloat while it was fighting the NFL and while it was offering contracts to players that could seduce them to play for an AFL team, the ABL didn't have that. So basically it's a kind of interesting story about where the, where the whole idea is coming from. But what doomed, what doomed, there were a couple of things that doomed the ABL besides the business aspect of it. One was that they were going to have a franchise in Los Angeles. Now, that would be a huge deal because if you think about it, 1961, there's no team in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles had just gotten the Dodgers in 1958. So, in other words, professional sports had woken up to the idea that, yes, there were people that were living out in the West Coast, and they would want to support a team too. And we could get a television market for those big populations also. And it didn't cost as much with jet travel to move your teams around. So it just made it feasible to open up this market. And he, Saperstein thought he would get his LA Jets into, that, into the arena in Los Angeles. And he was outmaneuvered by the leaders of the Minneapolis Lakers and the NBA, which got Minneapolis, which was kind of down on its luck and losing some of its audience and appeal to move to Los Angeles. And they got the arena they got the rights to play. So that kind of doomed them there too. But are there some things that you were thinking about that you wanted me to talk about with the tapers? Yeah, well, let's talk about the the tapers, right? So the tapers uh, essentially began with the ABL in 1961, but their origin, you were hinting at it before, I don't think we got specifically to it. Their, their origin was as, a, as an amateur team, and they weren't even based in Washington for that. They were based in New York. So how does that all get... How does that become the genesis or the, the, the core of a team in Washington, D.C. in this new league? Well, Lynn runs out of money and needs money to be able to pay the franchise fee to be able to uh, be in the ABL. And so he goes looking for money and he finds Paul Cohen, who's the president of what's called the Technical Tape Corporation in New Rochelle. And so he fronts them $100,000 or so to be able to buy in 
to the rights to have this basketball, to be part of this basketball team. And then since Lynn knows very little about the basketball world, he basically forfeits those decisions over to Cohen. So not a bad, not a bad deal for eighty-five to a hundred thousand dollars. You know, you get to you inherit basically the decision making of this team. I think there's a couple of things that stood out for me about the about that team, which was one was the fact that Gene Connolly, who was both a professional basketball player, he played with the, I think he played with the Celtics. And he also played professional baseball with the Red Sox, played with the Tapers. So he was actually a member of the Tapers in this league for a short period of time. And I spend a little time talking about the rarity of guys who are actually good at multiple sports and became professionals at multiple sports. I don't know if that jumps out at you at all as, as something to talk about, but I think just for just for the sake of it, I think it's interesting to note that Dave DeBusher was one of them. And then one of my other interesting ones was a guy named Ron Reed. who played both baseball and basketball. And then the most recent one that I can think of, or maybe there's two, the one that sticks in my head because he's still part of, he was still part of the NBA world until last year was Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge played uh, second base, I think, for the Toronto Blue Jays. And, of course, we all know him as a guard with the Celtics. Yeah, I, 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 doing, doing some research, I, also, I, uh, I think Connolly was even sort of uh, pulled into sort of uh, doing promotional work for the Tuck Tape Company along the way. That makes sense. I mean, goodness sakes, you know, you've got this asset – <laughs> yeah. Let's use them for every every chance they get. Well, but, the most but, interesting conversation. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Well, so so give me a sense though. But the, the team did not last long in in DC because again, we're talking about a team that that and the league it only lasted a year and a half. But by the middle of the first season, they moved to New York, Comac, the Comac Arena of all places, which is legendarily woeful as the new as the as the ABA version of the New York Nets found out a, a number of years later. Um, but then, but then they even moved to, um, uh, they uh, didn't they move to Philadelphia at the uh, for the next season, which only became a half season. So, uh, what, what's the story behind bouncing around there? Exactly, they were not they were an itinerant basketball team or a group of nomads. Let's call them that, because basically the league the league itself. I mean, the other downfall of the league is, you know. Obviously, you, you, finding stars, finding name players to fill out, to draw the spectators, and then you're traveling. My favorite part of this league is that they actually had a Hawaiian Chiefs team. So could you imagine the cost of the investment, the cost of flying your team out there to Hawaii? And then they'd play multiple games because they didn't want to fly back until they had played out the time that they were going to play in Hawaii. And so that also ended up drawing little interest from the, those fans that might have been interested in the first place in Hawaii. But I think the most telling story, I, I talked to Kaiser, and he basically had very positive memories of the experience. I mean, he joked about being, being the notable player on the team, i.e. the high scorer, you know, 
but he actually said he had a really nice time playing. He only meant to play for three years as a pro anyway. He came out of Georgia Tech. And so for him, he got a contract that guaranteed him to be paid for three years. So he was kind of a happy camper whether the team lasted that long or not. But he told a great story about going out to dinner with some of his African-American teammates at a local diner near, uh, near the stadium on, you know, in Northeast near third street. And they were looking at menus and the guys were grousing on the other side of the, on the other side of the table, the African-Americans in particular complaining about how expensive the sandwiches were. And Kaiser looked at the menu that he had in front of him and he said, but it's only $4 for a sandwich. And they said, double that. And then they actually showed him that they had a second menu, that they got a menu that was given to them that had double the price of all the stuff that Kaiser had gotten because Kaiser was a Caucasian man. Jeez. Yeah, so I think that kind of gives you another sense of uh, what some of the African-American players were up against uh, in, in some of these cities, especially some of the quote-unquote southern cities. You know, and I think this comes to fruition when we talk about uh, Earl Monroe and Earl Monroe as a player with the with the Baltimore Bullets. Well, but before we get there, though, I, I, I don't before we uh, I don't want to uh, bury the ABL too quickly, because I, I think in many respects, it's also uh, it was ahead of its time. Right. Uh, from uh, a lot of what Saperstein was thinking, but also from rules innovations. Right. The three point shot and a 30 second shooting clock and a wider free throw lane. Um, and yeah, and an envisionment, frankly, again, probably years early around uh, a, a growing nation that could be literally a coast to coast professional sporting uh, endeavor and perhaps even including in that uh, this budding thing known as television. Um, but, you know, again, you know, the NBA uh, certainly had uh, – a 10-year head start, right? And you were sort of mentioning it earlier before, right? I mean, talking about the NFL and the AFL, right? The AFL in the early 60s made a little bit, perhaps maybe in history's retrospect, right? A little bit more sense because pro football had been more of a thing for a little bit longer period of time. Not so with the professional basketball thing, which was probably about 20 years the NFL's junior. Right. Exactly. And I think... You know, we talk about what kind of what kind of ground was what kind of ground was sown for these two different sports. College football, which some of these players were coming out of that were going into the NFL, was huge. It had an incredible devotion throughout the the West, the Midwest, and the South of this country. So there was a built-in audience right there for some of those stars that were moving from the ranks of Alabama to go to become Joe Willie Namath, you know, with the, with the New York Titans slash Jets, you know, so there is a bit of a, a bit of an easier sell college basketball, of course, eventually develops a big cadre, a big fans, but for the most part, especially in the 1950s, and we can talk about the scandals and the betting scandals in the 1950s, a lot of well, college we, we don't have to, we don't have to talk about that too much in historical perspective because it's only, it's coming back again. You just wait, given the professional thing that's going on. What could go wrong with that? This time we hope it's legal. 
Right. Well, we'll see about that. The integrity of the game be damned. Point shaving, among other things. But you know what's interesting about that is it still was clustered in the Northeast and, and the Rust Belt, the college game. You know, the Big Ten basketball and Long Island and Rhode Island and all those places up in the Northeast. So it wasn't as national as college football. And I think that plays a role in, in understanding why, why the ground was a little fertile, a little bit more fertile. So you had stars to sell. And I think what you were hinting out about the changes that Saperstein brought into the game, I think our kin, there's a kindred stuff in the AFL. I mean, we talk a little bit about the AFL had an open game, a much more open game, which involved a lot more offense and a lot more throwing than the NFL did, NFL did. And that's something that could have happened with the ABL. Had it had the chance to grow roots and to sink in, I think those things like the 30-second clock, the three-point shot, may have actually solidified itself. You know, it's hard to say, but it's certainly, it's certainly a possibility. And we see it rise up again with the, with the start of another upshot league in 1967. All right, what's this? Bet DSI. All right. Well, hey, you're looking for a place to bet on NFL and, and NCAA football? Well, bet DSI is an industry leader, perhaps even the industry leader in football betting and is the perfect sports book for both novice and professional bettors alike. At Bet DSI, you can also enjoy live in game betting. So, what's that mean? Well, that means you can not only bet your favorite teams, but you can do uh, that and all kinds of different prop bets and, and various situations all game long on nearly every play to the final whistle. BetDSI's been around for 20 years and paying winners all along the way. 10,000 and more betting options daily on all the sports you love to watch, uh, daily fantasy, uh, top ratings on all the betting review sites, you name it, BetDSI uh, is the way to go. They've got a very user-friendly interface and mobile site and has the fastest payouts in the industry. Simply play, you win, and you get paid. Doesn't get better than that. Plus, BetDSI offers betting options for just about everything. NFL, college football, sure, but NBA, NHL, UFC, golf, other sports, politics even, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. Try live betting at BetDSI and you can bet on every major sport and event through the entire game, every play and every minute. So new members, that's what you're here for, right? New members get a 100% bonus match to their deposit when you use the promo code SEATS100. Again, 100% a bonus match when you use promo code SEATS100. That's more than double your money to start winning today. So once again, go to BetDSI.com and use the promo code SEATS100 and get this limited time 100% bonus offer and make some extra cash on the sports you know and love. And additionally, if you use Bitcoin, you'll get an additional 100% deposit bonus on your first two deposits up to $2,000. It all adds up to BetDSI being the place to do your betting as the football season approaches. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Thank you, BetDSI, for your sponsorship of this episode. And now... Back to our conversation. All right. 
right. Well, I don't want to talk about the ABA just yet because I want to. I want to use that ABL. The reason reason why I wanted to circle on the ABL one more sort of rev there was because um, it, this is the irony of this entire Washington D.C. basketball story. Because had it not been for the ABL, you could make the argument that uh, the 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 team that now occupies the Washington uh, NBA franchise uh, slot uh, wouldn't have uh, come around because. The beginnings of what this uh, franchise now known as the Wizards was actually got its start in 1961 in Chicago um, as an expansion team in the NBA as a response to what Saperstein was doing with the ABL. So maybe you can use that as a, as a starting point for, let's say, the beginnings of what is now the Washington Wizards. Circa 61 right. in Chicago. So that, was the, that was the Chicago Stags, exactly. And they had they had two major all stars, a guy named Terry Dissinger and most notably Walter Bellamy at center. And they so they drafted well, but they started with a rough team and they did not draw much interest in in Chicago, enough enough interest to sustain itself. And so what happens is they're put on the block and three three men in the in the Washington area decide to buy it. And those, that's a guy named Earl Foreman, Abe Saperstein, and their friend, uh, whose name is escaping me right now. Holman, I think his name is. Oh, goodness. Name's escaping me. But they basically come in and say, okay, we're going to take this team and we're going to transplant it to Baltimore. And they play in the Baltimore Coliseum. And they get considered, because they're a leftover from the Chicago team, Baltimore ends up playing in the Western Division of, of the NBA. So the, so, let me, the, so the Chicago Packers, and then they became the Zephyrs, this franchise right, was essentially bought by these guys and brought to Baltimore – to and re reincarnated in some respects, right? They took on the name the Bullets, which was the the name of one of the original uh, BAA NBA franchises, but but completely, you know, a number of years differently. Um, and why? I, I guess the question would be, why would and Earl Foreman's an interesting character because uh, we and we've talked about this at length about the MISL and and the ABA later on. W what was it about Baltimore that was going to be better than Chicago in terms of? being a big market, was it because of the, this sort of head-to-head -head competition with the ABL that was sort of stirring up there? It's a good question. Uh, you know, we saw, as you point out, I mean, the Washington team couldn't sustain an audience, you know, in the ABL. So you would wonder why Baltimore would. But Baltimore had a lot of, uh, Baltimore had a lot of industry. It was a big manufacturing city, a big port city, and it had an incredible ethnic community. And so it had a built-in audience. And so I think since those gentlemen basically feel that, Earl, Earl Foreman in particular, feel that Baltimore could be a successful, a successful place for the franchise. And they basically have an audience. They, they have that built-in audience, and they also have uh, a 12,000-person 12, 12, arena, which in that day is pretty good. To be able to bring in that, to be able to sustain that audience, so I think that's one of the reasons why Baltimore is a good place. They know Baltimore, 
and there's there's enough interest and enough money in the city to be able to sustain the team. And it proves that it proves that they're for the most part they're right. And then they actually do have a pretty good team. Yeah, it, it seems like they. It, 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 I'm trying to. I'm trying to sort of figure out because um, uh, we'll, we'll sort of get through the '60s in a minute. But I get the sense that it was also around the time where the NBA was really kind of starting to get its sea legs in terms of uh, legitimacy and 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 national attention as perhaps as a major sport worthy of follow, um, as well as players, right and. Um, the bullets really uh, more. I think they more than held their own. I mean, they pulled off some some pretty decent trades in the '60s. They they uh, they started to play fairly decently, and then by the end of the decade, I mean, you mentioned one of them, but maybe we should talk about uh, sort of the. I would argue the two uh, almost crucial members, uh, two Hall of Famers that came aboard in '67, um, that really kind of helped put Baltimore the bullets on the map and set the tone for what would happen in the decade following. Right. Ironically, just to talk a little bit about Walter Bellamy, Bellamy becomes one of the first of the many Washington players that holds out in a contract dispute and basically asks for, asks for a trade. And so there's a lot of friction on the team. Uh, there's people like Bailey Howell, Gus Johnson, who are, who, are, who are good players, and Bob Ferry, good players on their own right. And uh, there's questions about Bellamy's desire to pass, Bellamy's scoring, Bellamy's playing for his own, his own sense of self-worth as opposed to playing a team game. But the Bullets were good. The Bullets went to, went to the playoffs several times during the mid-1960s. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk a little bit about um, – why Baltimore? And one of the things I, I want to get back to about that is they're getting local television money. There's interest enough to watch the game on TV. So they sustain themselves, even though they're basically a little bit in the red, they sustain themselves through a local television contract and then whatever they get out of the national NBA contract, which isn't very much. But it's, it's interesting that they're always feeling – Baltimore is still feeling a, a, a monetary crunch because none of these men, Poland, Hess, or Foreman, are not rich themselves. So they can't sustain a team with too many high contracts. So they basically trade, they trade their first all-star. They trade Walter Bellamy. And they pick up some decent players. And, you know, they, they play well, but they struggle a little bit with the fact that they were shorter the when they lost Bellamy. And this is the league. One could start to argue that, you know, obviously Mike in before this, but this is the era. This is the first era of the great center. Bill Russell, clearly still playing, still vibrant. Will Chamberlain, you know, and so the game rotates, focuses around the center. And with Bellamy gone, they lose both that that small, the, the offense that's there, but they also lose some of the defensive strength that they had. So anyway, going on a little bit about the 67 draft, you're talking about Earl of Pearl Monroe, and we're also talking about Gus Johnson, right? Absolutely. Yes. Both of whom are, you know, Bellamy's actually a Hall of Famer too. So, I mean, the Bullets had some incredible players, but 
we get into the whole question about monetary, the amount of money that they had and the distribution of that money and then playing in Baltimore. Uh, Earl of Pearl comes from Louisiana, I believe, if I got that correct. And already, right from the beginning, he doesn't want to play in Baltimore. So he actually gives them a headache right from the beginning. He doesn't see Baltimore as an opportunity from where he can actually branch out his quote-unquote, I know this is using a term that's relevant today and wasn't as relevant then, but to build his own sense of who he is and his plan. So he already wants, he, he does not want to stay in Baltimore. And so that's one of the initial problems that they have. And then Gus Johnson is considered to be uh, too much of a me player, a little bit of a, too much of a shooter, and a little bit too moody for some of the guys who played uh, years before and were a little bit more of a, a, a team players, guys like Don Ole. So, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. But Monroe wins Rookie of the Year, and they definitely have an amazing team that goes into the playoffs and does very well. And really, you know, I mean, that's the roots of uh, Bob Ferry quits the team, becomes the team's coach. And that's kind of what we, we start to see a trend of former players going into coaching positions and, ma- and general management positions with the Bullets slash Wizards. So that's a whole other trend that we can talk about. Let's also talk about the other sort of guy who is i would argue is probably the probably the most synonymous with this franchise because you're hinting at his roles later in life as well as was wes unseld yeah I, I, I there's probably no better face for this uh bullets franchise both baltimore and then ultimately when they moved to dc can you sort of explain a little bit about just how integral he was to putting them on the map because i think it's lost on a lot of people and and unseld was part of this well, remember group. i was talking go ahead right I was talking about the importance of the center position. He's an undersized center. He's only six foot seven going against some of these men who were at least six ten and of course Will Chamberlain at over seven foot. And I think Russell's six eleven, right? So anyway, we're talking about an undersized mountain man. A big physical dude. And so, I mean, they talk about he's just he's hardcore. He plays the game tough, and he plays the game with elbows. And so that is, that is one of the core things that the Bullets, which eventually became the, the playoff Bullets and then eventually the championship Bullets, are synonymous with that kind of gritty, determined, physical, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to beat you. I am going to physically take you and beat you. It's kind of like the joke that we have about uh, current day uh, Novak Djokovic, which Andy Roddick started, which says, first, I'm going to take your legs. Then I'm going to take your spirit. It's kind of the way Unseld played. I mean, that man, that man is hardcore and he becomes identified with, with the bullets as their man. And eventually, as I say, their coach, their, they're, uh, they're, un- they're basically, they're everything. They're general manager. I mean, somebody puts it very well. He says, the image of the Bullets is a losing and lackadaisical organization on the court and at the box office. All that is over. Starting today, it's going to be a successful organization. And that's what 
Poland, and the other one said when he got his man, when they drafted Wes Unseld. And this is a hell of a, a, hell of a lot of pro- pressure to put on a rookie. But, you know, to basically think that he's going to change the, change the franchise. Hey, let's talk about let's talk about a Poland for a second before we go further, because um, we mentioned Earl Foreman earlier, and he's going to come back in a second when we talk about the ABA and 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 that sort of dalliance. But you want to talk about a Poland and where where his role it is is in all of this, because he he if if Foreman you know was kind of at least part of the mix of the of the three guys. I mean, Poland's the guy who really, if you will, steps up and takes it to the next level, certainly as the 1970s start rolling around with Unseld and others. Correct. So who, who's this Who's this Abe Poland guy? Can you describe for our audience who he is? So Abe Poland is a Washington real estate magnet. That's where, that's where he makes his money. And eventually, the friendship that he had with Arnold Haft and Earl Foreman becomes a little bumpy. And they disagreed with each other on the location of the team. And uh, they, this is brought about by what they consider to be limited fan support in Baltimore. As I'm saying, you know, they had a 12,000-person arena. It usually had four to 5,000 people in it. And basically, they got, they got tired of running get, and they got tired of, of uh Poland got tired of his two friends who were constantly in need of money. And so he basically addressed their money need by buying them out. And he buys them out in 1969. And that's also part of the reason why he makes the statement that he does about the end of the lackadaisical organization. Because he considers himself to be, hmm? No, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. And the timing, of course, then also neatly ties up with, with Foreman then going out and getting an ABA franchise for D.C. Correct. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, before Earl Foreman died, I had the great opportunity to talk to him. And you know, talk about a, a devilish genius. I mean, maybe that's an unfair categorization. I don't mean to call him a devil. I'm just saying he has, he has, he has that kind of impish genius that came across in my phone conversation with him. Yeah, we we just just for our listeners, we we talked to um, his uh, partner in crime, uh, starting up the old major indoor soccer league in the late seventies, uh, and would have lo- uh, uh, Ed Tepper, and we would have loved to have had the opportunity to talk to to Foreman specifically about that because that was itself its own sort of white hot comet. But but you can see right um, that imp- that that sort of devilish sort of uh, approach, right? I mean, I, whether he was spurned by Poland or whatever, but recognizing that hey, you know. Um, this ABA thing, maybe this is a way that basketball can, uh, I, you know, I can run my own show, so to speak. Exactly. So Poland, Poland runs the ship neatly and basically works on, works on trying to solidify the team itself. And so, I mean, we could talk a little bit about the fact that with Unseld at the center, the team is relatively successful with Monroe but Monroe basically says, I don't want to play here anymore and was willing to sit out for an entire year. And that was done by one other player that was notable during that period, a guy who threw underhand from the foul line, a guy by the name of Rick Barry. 
So he was going to follow, Barry did that in 1967, and he was going to follow, Monroe was possibly following Barry's path. And so that forces the Wizards to make a trade. And they make a trade for a guy named Mike Reardon and Dave Stallworth. And they trade Earl Monroe to the New York Knicks. And then it becomes Earl the Pearl and Walt Clyde Frazier in the back in the uh, in the backcourt of the of the only championship Knicks team there has ever been. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have a perverse. There's something funny about that, you know. The frustration, maybe just thinking about the frustration of New York City basketball fans is enough to make me laugh about that. But back to Washington. So he tips, he forces, Monroe forces himself out. The guys who come in, although Stalwart did have a drug problem and eventually didn't play as well as he had when he was with New York, Reardon brings in a hardcore, hard-hitting, uh, you know, not a marksman, but a decent shot. And that kind of characterizes the bullets for the next three to four years. Hardcore, crunch you on the front line, that kind of, that kind of identity. And it's interesting because that identity stays with the team even when Unso leaves them through the 1980s. And we can talk about that later. So that sets the... Poland eventually sets a path with a couple of good trades and the management of Gene Shue as their coach to the only championships that Washington Bullets had, which was in 1977 against the uh, 1978 against the Seattle SuperSonics. All right, well, we'll get to that. That's sort of the crowning thing. I want to sort of maybe sort of end on that note, right? But um, so let me. I just want to step back here uh, again on. Um, so in the late 60s, right, the Bullets are really becoming a thing. I mean, I know they hosted the NBA All-Star Game in 69. Um, you know, some pretty good battles with the Knicks uh, even before um, uh, Monroe going to the Knicks. Um, but I, I, now I want to bring back uh, the uh, the Earl Foreman and the ABA situation. Let's make a little background on that because this is actually integral to why I think Baltimore and Poland – ultimately chose to move the team from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. Do I have that correct? Correct. Correct. Territorial disputes is called. Right. Well, I, I'm going to set this up. Um, we, we, had, we had the great uh, pleasure of talking to Pat Boone, one of our early episodes around the Oakland Oaks, right? And so the Oaks were obviously the team that, that Foreman wound up bringing to D.C. Maybe you could kind of get a little sense as to what Foreman had in mind by trying to find this team and bring him to D.C. when he knew that Poland had the Baltimore Bullets and, and the territorialness of that, that region, right? Baltimore, Washington, you know, is either separate or, or a megalopolis, depending on how you look at things. And I have a feeling they both looked at it differently. Exactly. So as you put it, the Oakland Oaks are, are a ABA team. The ABA has started in 1967, and it's an op- it's a it's a wide open offense league to contrast against what they see as a as a more traditional pick and roll cut and screen NBA, and it gets into the whole discussion that we just had about the idea that basketball is now starting to establish more national roots. There's a television market for a, for an alternative league 
that can maybe boost that league for a couple of years while a team solidify themselves. And so the Oakland Oaks are basically available for sale. And in 1969, Earl Foreman buys them for $2.5 million with a, with a silent business partner. Now, Foreman loved running. Foreman was a lot of the decision-making of the early Baltimore Bullets was made by Foreman. So Foreman definitely had a love for, for basketball and for running his team. But he knew, he knew that he was going to win either way with this purchase. The way he was thinking about this, and he did admit this, was there's territorial rights idea that the Baltimore Bullets, Baltimore's only a, uh, less than an hour away from Washington, so the mileage is, is, is marginal. And the idea around territorial rights is that I have a 100-mile radius around my team, which Baltimore, obviously, if my radius would include Washington, D.C., so basically, the NBA said no basketball team could start up, no professional basketball team could start up within the radius of these territorial rights. And Foreman knowingly starts up a team in Washington, D.C. And guess where he puts them? He puts them in the Washington Coliseum. That was the home of the Washington Tapers. So he basically violates the violates the territorial rights, which he's ready to take to court. He figures, you know, that not necessarily, that is not necessarily something that a team can support because there is such a thing as antitrust. And he figured he might be able to win a case on antitrust. But more importantly, he figured they might buy me out. They might buy my team out to get me to move. And so either they'll buy the team outright or they'll give me money to go away. So that was the thinking behind bringing the, bringing the Washington team here. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize, too, that, that even in, in, what, year three, if you will, or so of the ABA, the rumors of mergers and, and, and amalgamation of, of teams was already underway. Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, there's a lot of articles about about that happening. And the expectation is that sooner or later it was going to happen. And so, you know, he had, he had some grounds for thinking this. You know, it made perfect sense. So he hires a guy named Al Bianchi to come, to become the coach of the team. This guy used to play with the, uh, he was a scrappy former guard with the old uh, NBA in Philadelphia and before that Syracuse. So, you know, He's got some former players, and the most interesting players to me are he has Dave Bing that he brings in, but he also brings in Larry Brown. So Larry Brown is a guard with this capital team that's playing in the, uh, in the old arena. I think that's kind of fun when you think about the most nomadic person in the history of professional basketball, I would say without a doubt, is Larry Brown. So it's kind of interesting that Larry Brown gets tied into this. So the team is basically pretty successful, and it draws decent crowds and, you know, starts winning in the ABA, and he's faced with a suit from, the, uh, from Poland to stop, stop playing professional basketball games. And Foreman's not worried about that. He figures he's going to figure he's willing to sustain a loss of, 
which in that time, as you think, is basically translating to millions of dollars just to stay in operation because he knows that if I've got Rick Barry, if I've got uh, Larry Brown, I've got relative name people and I can draw a crowd and I can possibly get television money or most importantly, they're going to merge. And my team is, I'm going to have a franchise in the NBA. So that's, that's basically where we're leaving it at this point. Do you have some questions? So, okay, so, uh, you know, the, the Oaks had just come off the winning the ABA championship and, and arguably he had, uh, and, and obviously Rick Barry was not a big fan of having to move and, and play in D.C. and stuff. But I'm just curious as to why, why only the one season? I mean, it, was, it seems to me that Poland was starting to make his intentions known that not only did he want to, you know, continue this, uh, keep this uh, sort of regional uh, world all to himself, but why would Foreman then leave? He moved to Virginia to come, become the Squires. Um, why did Foreman give up so quote unquote easily? Was it pressure from Poland? Was it was were were they had pressure so, from the, the NBA yeah. decided the NBA decided that they weren't going to they weren't going to merge right. They weren't ready to merge, and Congress they tried to move Congress to push for forcing a merger. And that didn't happen. And so Poland amounted to Poland, though he was talking big about losing 400,000, basically couldn't sustain that. And so the ABA decided to cover the capital's losses for the one season. But what would happen for the next season? He talked big, but he didn't necessarily have the, the cash behind it. So the NBA decided that they would they would basically, you know, uh, push him out. And so they basically, through the lack of a merger and through pushing through the territorial stuff, they forced Furman to leave and to go into Virginia and start what was basically a, a nomadic team in, in southern, throughout Virginia, basically. So that's what he does. I really just, you know, he couldn't sustain himself. He couldn't sustain a team, and they didn't have the merger, and it, so he couldn't make it happen. It, interesting. It almost, it almost sounds like it almost sounds like collusion between the NBA and the ABA, despite them being essentially rivals, yet also hinting at wanting to merge or at least put, lay down their sword, so to speak. So early in in the ABA's existence, I think they gave. I think. To be honest with you, and this, of course, he wouldn't admit this, but I believe they made it worth his while. The NBA made it worth Foreman's while to leave the Washington area. So both not being able to sustain the cost by not counting on the merger was not happening. And in fact, the merger takes another six, six or seven years to happen. And the, and the Virginia Squires don't even last that entire time. But, you know, the whole nomadic team playing in Norfolk and playing in Richmond and playing all over the place just to try to sustain itself didn't last. And, in fact, that's where the great Dr. J got his start with the Virginia Squires. Oh, yeah. Then, then he got the fire sale to the New York Nets, and then that then they – Subsequently, fire sale to the uh, the Sixers and 
sort of the rest is history. That's right. Well, again, you know, you, you got to give Foreman more credit, right? I mean, this is a guy he, you know, that he had a hand in discovering. All right, well, let's, all right, so let's then, let's play out the 70s because, and maybe this is the way to sort of um, <clears throat> cul-de-sac this. And, and I think maybe we'll just wind up at the end with uh, your, um, uh, the transition of the name, but um, the 70s, I think, I think a lot of people kind of really, and I, you know, I consider myself a, a decent longtime basketball fan. I, I guess I didn't realize just how dominant and successful the Washington Bullets were during the during the decade of the 1970s. Um, but I do want to get around the specifics of, of Poland moving from Baltimore to D.C. eventually. In, in, in I guess he announced it in, in, in 73, in February of 73. And do I have this right? They played a season as, known as the Capital Bullets to sort of regionalize. Yep. That's interesting. I never knew that. And it was, well... The base of the where the franchise was located was in an area called Landover, Maryland, which will come back to haunt uh, DC fans a couple of couple of decades later. So the so the Capitol Arena is is beloved by a lot of longtime Washingtonians because obviously the basketball team was incredibly successful, drew very well, and was definitely one of those suburban places that had all the amenities, including a great, cool scoreboard, and was the place where the suburban people could get to it easily, as opposed to having to drive downtown and come to either downtown Baltimore or drive downtown to, uh, to the arena that Uline built all the way back in the 40s. So, I mean, that's part of, part of the love. And then, of course, the other part of it is that that was a great place for concerts. And so a lot of people remember being stoned and watching all kinds of shows like The Grateful Dead, among other things. So I got those kinds of conversations when I talked with fans. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't filter what people say, you know. But it's but, but it's clear though. It's, it's clear though by by, by going putting a uh, putting going to Landover and it was it was very much regionally positioned, right? So that it was relatively easy for a Baltimore trip to go see a game and obviously for the DC fan as well. So in many respects that, but Washington though, seemed to have a much a more resonant tone. I'm just curious as to why it was capital for just one season. Uh, maybe it was envisioned as being transitional all along. I don't know. Well, it's also because the area, the, the building is built near the Capitol Beltway, which is 495, 95, 495. So that's one of the reasons why I took on that name, too. That name doesn't really, nobody talks about it as the Capitol Beltway anymore. The most they give it is the Beltway. So it was taking on the name of the, of the location, in a way, too, of what was near it. So that was part of the reason also. But, I mean, it, it just lasts for one year. And I think Bowen, after he gets rid of, after he really clears out the deck and any, any wharf smell from Foreman's ABA dreams is gone. He takes on the name Washington. And that's where he's from too. Poland is a Washingtonian. So that makes a lot of sense that he would, that he would make his team a Washington team. So when the Capitol center goes up, I mean, it's an interesting story about how quickly it goes up, how much it costs. 
you know, the biggest, the biggest arena in uh, of that era. I mean, all it offered. So, I mean, it's, it's fun. And then we can talk about it later, but interestingly enough, the other thing that's key for, for Baltimore is to get Elvin Hayes to play as a forward on their team. And it's the combination of Elvin Hayes and, and Unsell that begins to make the, make the bullets into, uh, into the team that they were to become and the franchise of the 70s with their kind of, the kind of basketball that they played, along with Mike Reardon, who's hard. And also, ironically, the guy who actually serves as the announcer for many, many years later, a guy by the name of Bill Chenier, that goes back to that whole idea of once you become part of the Wizards family, and I think Poland really thought about this team as a family. Once you became part of the Wizards family, you stayed part of the Wizards family. And so we see the recycling of some of these people as coaches. Kevin Lockerty, who played, who played guard for the, for the, uh, for the Bullets. You know, and it's just, it's an interesting phenomenon. And of course, that in itself, Bob Ferry, who played with the Bullets in Baltimore in the 1960s, is the general manager of the team for 20 years, from early 1970 through 1990. That's how loyal Poland is. Yeah, and, and Wes Unsold, the ultimate example. The Wes Unsold, the ultimate example of that too, when he came back to coach in the late 80s. Right, exactly. And it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you do. That's okay. You're my guy. So I mean, that's kind of. That's kind of the environment that the bullets were bullets and eventually the wizards are run under and it kind of undercuts things. But if, if we have a future to talk a future time to talk about that, the wizards, the wizards conversation and some of the people are fascinating. I'll just give you one little blip. Two men talked to me and they identified what it was like to travel under the early nineties and how it compared with other teams. And then they also identified some of the trading ideas that were bad for the team during the 1990s. And they literally asked me not to quote them. And the reason is that it's such a fraternity. The professional league is such a fraternity that they didn't want to have their name attached to any kind of negative comment about anybody in the fraternity or things that happened in the fraternity because that would cheat them out of any opportunity to come back into the fraternity. Interesting. And that's, that's a, it gets, it speaks to sort of the, I don't know, familial sort of nature of this. I mean, it, it, this does harken a, a little bit, almost like to the, uh, the Jerry bus dynamic with the Lakers, right? It's kind of like a family run and somewhat close knit and try not to air the laundry outside the organization. Uh, and, you know, 1978, I mean, they brought that not only the, the, the winning that championship, but I mean, that they really brought D.C. to, I mean, it was the first professional championship in some 30 years or so. And, and that halo, I think, really helped them through the 70s and 80s and even to the 90s, at least sort of that heritage didn't hurt. Exactly. Plus, they lost the next year in seven games. Yeah, so they, were, they almost made it. Again. Games, I'm sorry. Yeah, so they fought. They had two great years in which they rose to the level of playing in the, in, the, in the NBA Finals. And, of course, it happens to be the years that the league becomes marred with 
the beginnings of the drug crisis and the use of the use of um, not talking about marijuana. We're talking about cocaine and and speed and other kinds of drugs. So the league unfortunately gets marred a little bit and it kind of tarnishes those championships in some ways, because when um, the classic, the classic statement, I'm going to look for this, but the classic statement is when were the games played? You know, they were talking about the national television rights, which CBS had at that time. And a comment was CBS played them at 1130 on tape delay. That's the comment about the national, the finals of the National Basketball Association in that era, that they were played on tape delay and they, and, uh, they were shown late at night. And I think that's partly because of the two teams that are playing. I hate to say that, but the markets for both Seattle and Washington are not huge. They're not New York. They're not Chicago. They're not Los Angeles. Yeah, Portland and, and Phoenix. Portland and Phoenix at that time too. Also, we're same same kind of dynamic, right? That's that's where I was going. The year before, even with Bill Walton, the years before Portland was playing, and so it it hurt the game. And we, I'm not going to say I can't prove this. And obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about this. But Larry Bird's drafting by the by the renowned franchise the Boston Celtics and Magic Johnson going to the Los Angeles Lakers. And then the way the game is shifted, the development of the three point shot, all those things actually feeds into the, uh, the growing of the game. And I think uh, we cannot minimize the role of David Stern. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that. We, we, it's, yeah, I, so I, we could we go wax uh, philosophic about all of that stuff because there's so much, so much there. I don't disagree for sure. I think it's a, it's a really interesting um, uh, a commentary there because yeah, I remember watching those games in the '70s, right? And they were those these tape delay things, and it was, um, yeah, it was almost kind of I want to say mystical. I grew up in the in the New York area, but it was it was kind of like an oddity, right? In that you you know there was this NBA championship thing i was certainly aware of the nets and the knicks but you know to actually it, it was seemed seemingly brushed aside now again the television landscape was very different it was only three major networks and cable was only in its very very infancy but i guess i just want to sort of maybe and maybe use this as our sort of uh our off ramp yeah go ahead can i add one more thing i'm sorry i think we also have to take into account the presence of the african-american player and its role in both the popularity and the lack of popularity. Um, there were there were times when teams basically didn't didn't quite talk about it, but had a minimum and a maximum number of Caucasian and uh, African American players. There was this belief that that was important for the marketing and selling of the game, and I think during the era. Uh, that we're talking about, except for Bill Walton and a few other people, we are talking about an era in which the game's greatest players and best figures are mostly African-American. And I don't know how that affects the audience, but there's this belief that it hampered some of the interest that people might have had in the sport. I'm just going to leave it at that. There's, I don't have documentation for that, but I do have documentation for the fact that teams definitely – uh, minimize the number of players. 
Well, I, I do want to get into um, sort of the, the the end story of the Bullets name for the franchise. So we, we kind of obsess about on this show, you know, uh, uh, previous incarnations of teams, right? So in many respects, the Washington Bullets, right, to me is is a past tense kind of thing. Uh, and the name change isn't insignificant, but but maybe you can uh, maybe we can sort of uh, sort of uh, end our our chat here and then get into maybe a little look into the future uh, of where the the basketball in, in DC uh, sort of in your mind sort of sits. But w- why the name change, and uh, and in particular, I guess the the rationale around when I guess this was about the mid nineteen nineties or so. Um, the bullet's name was never sort of originally envisioned as, I guess it was sort of a, it was connoted to sort of a, a alluding to being quote unquote faster than a speeding bullet, a, a fast moving team and play and all that kind of stuff. Train. There you go. Um, but, but, but it was not, that was not the, the sensibility in the mid nineties. Exactly. And what happened is again, we talk about Poland as a fascinating man. Again, somebody who died before I had the opportunity to talk to him. But enough of a, of a genuine, genuine, sensitive family man that when Isaac Rabin, the prime minister of Israel, was assassinated after the Oslo Accords uh, in 1994, uh, he personally felt that the connotations of bullets, in particular bullets as uh related to weaponry was something he couldn't live with anymore. And so they held a contest in which they tried to ask their fans to name the team. And the name has an alliteratory notion, the idea of Washington Wizards, WW. And so that might've been one of the reasons why it was chosen but there was an awful lot of people that weren't happy with that. They couldn't understand for the life of them what Wizards has to do with Washington. But it was chosen. And so that's what, they, that's what it became. And then all the work that goes into marketing the new team with the new logo and, you know, the new start, the new, the new way of being and cleaning in a sense, almost like cleaning up a reputation that wasn't negative to begin with, but in his mind was because of the, the negative use of, of, of weapons and bullets in particular. Also, we have to take into account that in the 1980s, along with Detroit, Washington was one of the murder capitals of the United States. Uh, the untoward dealing of crack cocaine and the, and the business of dealing of crack cocaine uh, destroyed neighborhoods in particular, one neighborhood that's called Hanover, that is four blocks away from where I'm sitting right now in a neighborhood called Truxton Circle. And it, uh, the street fights and all the drive-bys, it was synonymous with the city. And that also informed Poland, although it didn't really talk about that very much but it certainly had a the man's sensitive and the man's sensitive in a and i think a very genuine way i don't think this has anything to do with crass marketing or trying to re-envision themselves i, I think it really has to do with 
awareness of the loss of his friend and what was happening to the city that he grew up in and he loved. Yeah. And, um, you know, look, and, and that's only become more pronounced, right? And, and ironically, in Washington, D.C., with the um, the Washington football team, right, for different reasons, um, there's more of a, an evolved understanding of things. And, you know, in, in retrospect, um, I don't think you can blame the guy for, for wanting to change uh, the image of the team perceived or otherwise, right? I th- That said, however, right, you, you I guess one of, uh, I'll ask two sort of last questions. The first one is, so how much or how little that you're aware of does, and I, I just don't know the answer to this, does the Wizards franchise now under the ownership of Ted Leonsis um, and and monumental sports and, and a, a, you know, a, a very vibrant uh, ownership group, um, how much do they go back into the history vault and remember the Bullets version of the franchise, Baltimore or DC versions? Or is that is that literally not... It, that's sort of just not touched upon at all, really, historically. Not, for the most part, not touched upon, certainly not touched upon enough. However, there was a mural outside of the front entrance. Well, okay, side entrance, we'll call it. Uh, the, the, the new arena, which Abe Poland built, uh, they, what was called the MCI Arena at that time, uh, is and now it's the Capital One Arena, I think, runs from an entire city block from G Street down to F Street and from 7th Street to 7th Street to 6th Street. So it's one big giant block and there's an entrance, a main entrance on F Street and there's a main entrance on 7th Street. And the 7th Street entrance had a beautiful mural of some of the great players of the past, including the championship team including guys like Bobby Dandridge, who was a forward and a very important shooter in the 1978-79 era, uh, Wes Unseld, and other other notables from the Wizards' past. So, uh, sorry, from the Bullets' past. So there is that. And then there's occasional times when you see somebody being observed for a birthday and those kinds of stuff. But it's not... It's not done as much as there could be the opportunity to do since it started in 1962 that's a long amount of history 50 years yeah it's 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 um but it's delicate too right i you know uh look this is also not as violent so to speak as as moving from one city to another and then completely whitewashing say like the carolina hurricanes with the uh, the, the hartford whalers in the nhl yet Conveniently, with new ownership there in in Carolina, right? They actually do want to embrace the Hartford Whalers, right? So it, it just seems to ebb and flow. I, it, you know, I, and it's there's a delicacy to it or a delicateness. Sorry, that's the correct word. That's not a delicacy. It's not a fine food. <laughs> Let's get your words right, Mr. English major here. Um, but I, th- there's a delicateness, right, to all of this, right? Because it was a sensitive issue and topic and, and rebranding. Yet it's hard to ignore. Right. Like, for example, the 1978 championship season, right, which is arguably one of the most important uh, elements of the historical story of this franchise. Right. Was as the Washington Bullets. Right. So what do you do? Do you whitewash those out from the from the video? It just doesn't you know, how do you celebrate something like that and remember it and anniversaryize it yet not sort of recognize the fact that it was known as 
as a different name. Right. And in some cases, obviously a different location, as you were talking about before, whether it was, you know, it was Washington suburbs or even before that in, in Baltimore itself. So, and Chicago, as we talked about. So it's, but there is a way in which you can tap into the positive aspects of things. And if you put the pictures up and the visuals are strong enough, I don't know that anybody's going to worry about some of the small nuances that we're talking about. I think it could, you could, Oh, you could positively sell the emotional message and that would, that would overtake a lot a, a lot of the mental gymnastics that we're talking about. Yeah, or or at least explain the backstory, right? Like you know uh, that which is different. Like, and we talked about this with um, uh, with Rich King. We talked about uh, the the Washington football team and and the, and the name and 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 all the issues around that. You know, the, I think, and there are a lot of you know uh, uh, Indian related names that are now being seriously questioned and or revisited and or frankly uh, dropped in favor of other things, but. You know, he. I, if I remember that conversation correctly, he he pointed out that there have been some teams. Uh, I think that the uh, Florida State Seminoles, for example, in the NCAA, right, where you know they they bent over backwards to create um, a, a an important and historically correct narrative around the importance and the uh, sanctity of that name, the Seminoles, uh, to essentially ensure both in the past in terms of its intent and in the future of how it's used is more of a commemoration and celebration, right? Whereas you look at a team like the Washington football team's former name, um, it's very hard to defend that before, during, or after. Uh, there's, there's really very little that was sort of positive about that nickname, right? So, you know, this could be, and I think this situation, this bullet's name, right, is even less intense than that because we're not, there's no offensiveness intended nor uh, incurred, right, by anybody. It was, but the sensitivity certainly could be understood, embraced, and and rolled up into. You know, again, I'm not saying, hey, let's sell some bullets uh, jerseys, right? Um, yeah, I also feel it's hard to completely ignore, you know, the franchise's name and hell, even the fact that it existed. In Baltimore, hell, even I, I until this conversation, I didn't even know they were essentially born in Chicago, right? So th that history to me is, is, and again, we obsess about that. We may be the only ones that obsess about this, but it's part of the story, right? And, you know, there's generations of fans who don't even know from the bullets, right? That this, this, this Washington Wizards franchise, which is fine, but it's also... It's naive to think that it just showed up one day just because you became conscious of it, right? There's a, there were years of history that got it to this point. And isn't it curious and would you like to know and understand that? That's why we do this silly little show. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring it up, and I'm glad you actually have this show. But I do want to point out that I belong. There's a North American uh, sports history group. Uh, and it's academics that are interested in sports history and write about various aspects of sports history. And so a lot of those guys rescue old leagues like the, the American Conference where the Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers started. And they talk a lot about that stuff. But what I find interesting is the amount of attention that basketball gets from those guys is not that great. It's just an observation. Now, there's plenty of Canadians that spend a lot of time focused on the NHL, and that, you know, more power to them. 
That's great. I wish more Americans were fascinated with the NHL. But I find it interesting that among the academics, maybe it's an age thing, I don't know, but baseball and to some degree football, and really the biggest, the biggest thing that gets the most attention is the Olympics. I don't know. That's just, a, that's just something that I've experienced, and I thought you might find that interesting, that even the, even the people that study this stuff uh, don't necessarily focus on basketball and don't necessarily focus on the, the various iterations. Well, hopefully we'll get a few more people from the group to, to listen to the show. Maybe we'll uh, stir some stuff up. All right, here's here here's the here's the here's the last question. Then, so I kind of hinted at it. You sort of sort of showed my bias a little bit, but I get the sense that the Wizards are essentially in good hands as the NBA goes to sort of stratospheric levels now. I mean, on a good day, you know, given the N- the NFL a run for being an international. Uh, dominant uh, factor in the sport. Um, uh, Messrs. Leonsis and crew um, and and the Monumental Sports Group, it would seem to me that the Wizards are uh, in solid shape to not only uh, continue in the D.C. area, but uh, be an influencer uh, in the NBA and onwards. Well, okay, that's interesting. We didn't talk a little bit about perception. Uh, even back to 1990s, early 1990s, some players, uh, Brian, uh, there are a few players that actually, uh, Brian Shaw, for example, refused to come here, didn't want to come to Washington. And so that's something that the Washington franchise still has to fight. You know, there's just something about this city that even though his agent at that point talked about it's one of the greatest places to be an African-American professional young single person. And that didn't sell him. And that, that continued on for years and years and years. Part of it is being mitigated by the fact that Leonce spends more money on the team. But there's still that factor. And it's kind of an interesting thing. It's not one of the go-to places. And I have heard interesting stories from some African-American friends that it's a great place for groupies <laughs> that players can have an amazing time. And in fact, some of them, some of them suppose that it influences their play to a negative extent, but that's, that's hearsay, but I am going to put it out that I'm hoping that with Grunfeld replaced over the last two years, we've seen positive moves by the, by the, uh, by the uh, leadership you know, the general managers. And so I'm hoping that we will reach a new level. We will raise above the team that makes it to the first or if at most second rung, like we did when we played against Boston when John Wall and Bradley Beal were at the top of their game. But that was a one-off, you know? Washington hasn't had that much more than just the one-off. Those that and that's kind of frustrating, and it won't allow the team to build the kind of fan space and momentum. You need multiple years of winning. It's got to become a consistent, positive force in the environment to get to to bring people in. So maybe that's what's going to happen. I think the Russell Westbrook trade was a great trade for the Bullets for the Wizards. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you so, go. Bullets, Wizards, yeah, it's still exactly. there, right? It's still there for a generation <laughs> for sure, right? 
It is. All right, fun stuff. Get the book, will you? It's called The Bullets, The Wizards, and Washington, D.C. Basketball. And I think the title uh, is a tad bit uh, of a misnomer because literally it's a walk through the history of professional basketball, all the major teams that played uh, in the city and environs, including all the the lead-ups, including the Baltimore uh, situation and, uh, uh, you know, the diaspora of it from the ABA and the Virginia Squires, all that stuff. And literally, it's a chapter-by-chapter chapter, uh, assessment of these various teams, dating all the way back, as we talked about, to the Palace Five, all the way through uh, what is now known as the Washington Wizards and everything in between. Uh, it is uh, co-authored by our guest this week, Brett Abrams. Thank you, Brett. And Rafael Mazzone, who was uh, going to join us as well, but pulled up lame um, uh, just before our uh, recording. So we apologize for not having Rafael here, but uh, uh, I'm sure both of them will uh, uh, overlook that um, that situation by uh, enjoying, hopefully, a couple of purchases of their fine book. It is published by Scarecrow Press. Uh, it is available wherever good books are found. And, of course, you can find uh, a convenient link to it uh, at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 232 uh, with Brett Abrams, and you will find a convenient link. Uh, it will take you to Amazon. You will get it to as quickly as humanly possible. And... Um, uh, we'll get a couple of uh, uh, of uh, pierogies uh, or uh, shekels or uh, pennies of uh, whatever the, the demarcation is uh, of love for doing so. And we appreciate you uh, buying all of your books from all of our guests uh, through those links uh, on our website. Uh, we appreciate that to no end. We appreciate your email, of course. We're at uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we appreciate you following us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find a page devoted to us on uh, Facebook as well. Uh, and what else? Oh, yeah, you can sign up for our email newsletter. Just find the link on our website. Got exactly where that is, but uh, you'll find it. Just search around, give us your name and your uh, email address, and uh, voila, you will be uh, informed each and every week. Uh, a little head start as to what uh, our topic is going to be. Uh, each and every week. Want to also thank uh, the kind uh, knob twiddling from our pal Jerry Payne down in suburban Atlanta. Thank you, kind sir, for uh, putting up with, putting up with us this week, as you do every week. But uh, you know, more more um, uh, urgently this week, we appreciate it. We didn't make we did not make it easy for you this week. We apologize. Uh, but we also want to uh, encourage you to. Um, continue to listen. We have lots of great episodes. also want to uh, make a, a reference to the uh, the clip at the beginning of the show, which I forgot to mention at the top, uh, was from the 1978 uh, NBA Finals, Game 7. And of course, that was a, uh, a young uh, and eager Brent Musburger calling the action. Uh, and it was, uh, I think that game was taped delayed. Uh, I don't know if they made a special arrangement for, uh, for Washington, D.C. fans, uh, but that's how games were uh, kind of delivered, uh, especially the, the um, the finals uh, was at 11.30 at night uh, on the East Coast uh, on CBS. And uh, to, lead, to let you out here, we're going to leave you with uh, a little gem of a discovery I found on, on YouTube. If you're a Washington Bullets fan uh, from the 1970s and you remember that 1978 NBA World Championship, well, you may remember a little tune done by the great Niels Lofgren. Yes, he of the uh, Bruce Springsteen E Street Band 
and other uh, great uh, musical uh, uh, places uh, and, a, and a sterling solo career too. Niels Lofgren wrote and sang this song we're going to leave you with. It's called Bullets Fever. This is a single that came out and it was uh, all the rage in 1978. Uh, and we're going to leave you with it. Here it is. Bullets Fever. Niels Lofgren. Thanks for listening this week, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bullets Fever happens to me every year. Bullets Fever and this year's the one. Bullet fever, got the doctor and the Iceman. Bullet fever, Seattle was stunned. You gotta be a fan from old DC to know what the bullets mean to me. To see them get up and go all the way. For me, bullet fever is here to stay. Bullet fever. Happens to me every year Bullets fever And this year's the one Bullets fever Got the doctor and the Iceman Bullets fever Seattle was done CJ and Larry Great Joe and Mitch Ran the bomb squad into a ditch CJ, Tom and Larry are fast as light Kevin, Bobby and Elvin They shoot out of sight Ain't it beautiful how Bobby D Played so great with a big E At Azu we blew the Sonics out Now all the world knows what our team's about Bullet fever happens to me every year Bullet fever Oh,